All right, all right, all right. Or should I say right on, right on, right on. Program. We'll wait for a few people to come on. Chris should be joining in a little bit. Well, we got a good one for you today, ladies and gentlemen. We got a real good one. My mind is really blown uh, from... Uh-oh, how did Native Mom become a guest on the show? I'm not sure, but Native Mom, I'm going to take you out because I'm going to reserve that spot for clips. All right, come on in, everybody. Share the show, share the show, get the word out. This is going to be a good one. And uh, for those of you who go to write on you and support the military analyst, the Intel brief has been uploaded and you can follow along as uh, Chris comes in and no worries. I, you know what? Uh, just a quick note about uh, to native mom, uh, right? The, by default, the call in setting is on and, uh, and I have to turn it off manually right after I go live. And if your finger kind of hit, <laughs> touched that button at the time that I, before I turned it off, that's what would have happened. Hey, Twin, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Can you believe that there was a secret space program in the 1830s? This is incredible. And the stuff that Chris is going to be bringing forward uh, he should be joining in a couple minutes, of course. Uh, well, listen, I, <laughs> I'm buying time waiting for him to come in, but it's a good time to talk about My Liberty Stand. Hey, if you're sick of giving your money to the cabal, if you want to support American jobs, Canadian jobs, stop buying poison that they're selling and killing your family with, then go to mylibertystand.com and join our community because we are fighting back by taking the dollars and keeping our families healthy. And by the way, I don't talk about it often enough, but I mentioned it on last night's show, so it's worth mentioning one more time. If you didn't catch last night's show with Cisco, which was fantastic, by the way, uh, she is such a great guest. Uh, but at the end of it, we talked about inflation and stuff like that. Did you know if you join our team, and it's not multi-level marketing, I want to be really, really clear about that, but if you join our team at My Liberty Stand, you can actually, uh, you know, offset some of those cost increases and maybe even get your shopping for free and possibly even make some money. Just depends on what you want to do. It's completely relaxed, but we uh, we welcome you to go to MyLibertyStand.com. Also, uh, just before I bring Chris in, I notice he's in the room now. Uh, just want to re-emphasize that uh, these essays are very big. There's a lot of pictures and stuff like that, so... Uh, we really can't post them on social media. There's not a site that can handle the uh, files this size. So we have put them up on Write On You. That's Write On with the letter U. And that's Art, uh, Write as in the name of the show, Write On Radio, R-I-G-H-T-O-N, with the letter U.com. And if you go there, you can actually support uh, this channel. You can support the military analyst, of course, and... Uh, and all of the Intel briefs are up there before the program goes live. And this one is a good one. And just as I bring him on, of course, he goes by the name Chris Wilson. That is not his real name. That is his pseudonym that he uses uh, in public life. 
but we call him the military analyst. We do protect his uh, anonymity because he would be killed for the stuff that he is bringing forth, especially when he goes against the Kazarian mafia and things like that. You know, very, very powerful people in the world. But he is risking it because he believes that this world needs to know the truth. So without further ado, let's thank him for his military service and working at the very highest levels of the military, you know, even in the weapons research, development, and sales. We're talking a very high-level uh, clearance in the military, and he is here really as a whistleblower and a deep researcher, and that's why we call him the military analyst. Without further ado, welcome back to Right On Radio, Chris. Thank you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure, and I have a very, very interesting, uh, explicit uh, essay today. Uh, this concerns what the world has no clue of. Essentially, the Germans in the 1830s developed the first type of anti-gravity technology. It was not solid-based. It was liquid. And it was developed by an ultra-secret elite German club, not a secret society. Understand the difference. And they developed it in 1830. They revised it in 1850. These crafts were flying throughout Europe. They crossed the Atlantic Ocean. They were the size of blimps, but they were not air-driven or helium or... or uh, uh, hydrogen. They were not a gas-based. They were actually a type of anti-gravity based on uh, a liquid uh, method of developing it with a, uh, that was poured onto an engine. I'll get into the, the details in a moment, but it is absolutely fascinating. The author who wrote this, he is very well known. His name is Walter Bosley, B-O-S-L-E-Y. And he has written a series of books, which I'll go over in a moment, but he is absolutely worth your effort. And this also ties in that he was able to correlate the outlaws that the public has known through legends, which is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. When you find out the, the background on them, you'll understand why. Anyway, uh, let's go forward. <clears throat> this is called The Secret Space Program. Uh, the 2015 origins, emergence of the breakaway civilization. So uh, Jeff has when uh, available to the audience when this is posted or if it is posted now that you can actually click on the uh, link which describes what I'm telling, but he also includes a lot more pictures in his uh, interview, which is absolutely uh, incredible. And... That is worth uh, pursuing uh, after the show. Walter Bosley. Just to conclude, I did post it, and I posted it in Word form, so the links should work directly from the document. If they don't, just copy and paste them into a browser. Correct. Walter Bosley is the noted author of the Empire of the Wheel series. There are three, as well as the Secret Mission series. Uh, some of his works include Secret Missions, The Hidden Legacy of Old California, 
Secret Missions 2, The Lost Expeditions of Francis Burton, and Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom, The Arcane Science and Hermetic Engineering of the Happiest Place on Earth. His Empire of the Wield, Part 1, is an investigation of occult espionage and murder. Uh, Empire of the Wield, Part 2, is Friends from Sonora. And Empire of the Wheel Part 3 is The Nameless Ones. Bosley has also recently come out with a new book, Origin, colon, The 19th Century Emergence of the 20th Century Breakaway Civilizations. Bosley begins his presentation by noting his background and credentials uh, with a slide. This was presented by a man by the name of Zai Z-Y Marquez, M-A-R-Q-U-I-E-Z, who interviewed him uh, June 2nd, uh, 2016. In his main point, Bosley states that in his view, the breakaway civilization uh, popularly discussed is not a product of the Nazi Germany, not a product of post-World War II uh, military-industrial complex, uh, or the reverse engineering of the ET crafts. He does believe that all the above intertwine with the 19th century breakaway emergence. What that means, audience, is that these are a byproduct. These are a result of this uh, type of uh, ultra-secret engineering that the Germans are well known for. Germany has always been the leader in the world in engineering and scientific and uh, of both applied science and all of the uh, natural, physical, and uh, chemical, biochemical. Anyway, um, Bosley's evidence is based mostly on three factors. One, Germans or Germany, two, money, and three, technology. The Germans in the 20th century, uh, their breakaway civilizations would not have happened without the mysterious 19th century, that's your 1800s, airship, and this is an acronym, and I'll get to the acronym in a moment. It's NY, November Yankee, M is in Mike, Z is in Zulu, A is in Alpha. I'll explain in a moment. Bosley wonders who this mysterious and notorious uh, NIMSA group uh, is, and thence he hones in on the secret development of airship technology pursued in the 19th century by the Prussian nationalist cabal known as NIMSA. And that is the source of the modern emergence of the secret space programs conducted by the breakaway civilizations that have likely existed since the post-U.S. Civil War era. The author also mentions that he believes there are two groups. The first is the American post-Civil War era group, and the second is the German group, which existed before that. Okay, he goes on to say, what is NIMSA, the acronym? As he touched on upon in the detail in his book, NIMSA is a translation by Charles A. A Delshaw, D-E-L-L-S-C-H-A-U. Uh, it's an acronym of a covert organization headquartered in Germany. And that was in the German language, which was N-J, as in Juliet, Mike Zulu Alpha. Bosley then proceeds to cover how the acronym and transliteration connects to other possibilities, most, mostly connected with New York and such. In the end, the final translation for NIMSA, okay, with the J, N-J-M-Z-A, it's in German, and then he translates it into English. Nationalist Jagenflugzeug, Maschinist 
Zalungsamt. That translates literally into nationalist hunting flying object machines payment office slash debt department, which further translates into nationalist pursuit slash exploration airship program office. Bosley further elaborates on who the Nimja ultimately is. It's a distinctly Prussian nationalist organization dedicated to unified Germany's global superiority in active pursuit of influence and exploration of the natural resources and industries of the Americas, both North and South. At the present, he points out that in the 1850s, there was no Germany. Instead, the regional powers were via German states or territories. Within this era, there was a unification being pushed for a unified nation. What this means is that a private group that was made up of German nationalists dedicated to a unified German, quote, as noted above. He completes that this is where the nationalist distinction is important here. Okay, let's go into the, what are the origins of NIMJA, N-J-M-Z-A. Charles A.A. Delashaw was a German immigrant. He was born in Brandenburg, Prussia. Prussia was Germany before, and that was 4 June 1830. He died in Houston, Texas, 20 April 1923. He lived to 97. It's important, uh, is it possible he was sent to California as a spy by the NIMJA organization to observe and report on the secret activities of the Sonora Aereo Club? Sonora is uh, S-O-N-O-R-A, and that is a town west of Yosemite National Park in Northern California. So he goes, where does this all lead? To the Sonora Aerial Club, which was a secret group primarily of and led by German immigrants with a few Italians who, according to Delashaw, designed, built, and flew some small rudimentary contraptions, which they called aerials, A-E-R-O-S, in the rural expanse west of Yosemite, uh, California, in the 1850s. This is well over a century and a half ago. So uh, he goes on to describe that all under the watchful eye of NIMSA, the organization itself, which is headquartered in Germany, notably pointed out by Bosley is the fact that we only know about Nimja through this character by the name of Delashaw and his testimony. Delashaw refers to the other groups in the United States, and as he points out later by the presenter, Bazi proceeds to show that the following pictures of the aerials, and these will be, uh, Jeff, you'll be able to put these the actual photos up onto your uh, your website later after the uh, text you've uh, established. And so the audience can see that these crafts they look almost like an airship, but they are not. Okay. He mentions that Delashaw made several books of these aerials and that they have created much fanfare therein. Bozzi makes it a point to note that the dome-shaped ships are not a balloon. The following illustrations are noted by Bosley, and there's a multitude of pictures which show they were not airships. They were anti-gravity, and I'll get into how they ran. The presenter proceeds to speak on how the wheels moved inside, which are magnetic anti-gravity devices. That's what the wheels represents, and that's the service uh, purpose they serve. The Prussian officer, 
The Sonora, the Sonora Aerial Club rejected outsized requests to, military, to militarize aerial technology. Not long after, their leader of this group in California, this uh, Sonora Aerial Club, is killed in a convenient accident, taking the secret of the aerial tech possibly to his grave. The club dissolves and Delashaw departs California. Now, Delashaw was a German and he was there in the early 1850s. And he actually wrote and took notes and his notes were discovered in the 1900s. And I think it was about 1910. They were actually retrieved by a junk dealer from a trash can. And these notebooks that he had have all the evidence, and then they were later bought in the, I think, uh, the somewhere around the eight, uh, 1960s, uh, which is a reason why we still have this information today, is because he actually kept records of it, and he was part of that club. So, um, Bosley noted that the man's name, Peter Menes, M-E-N-N-I-S, dies under mysterious circumstances after rejecting the use of this technology for military purposes. Menace was the leader of the Sonora Club in California. And what they decided that this club, although they were built for the purpose of NIMSA, the, the ultra-secret elite club in Germany, that he decided he didn't. they should not be used for military purposes. They should be used for uh, advancing uh, technology for the world. And it cost him his life. Uh, what happened after the dissolution of the Sonora Club in the 1850s? Okay, it gets even deeper. Nimja and the Reich. Bosley proceeds to expound on in 1862 to 1888, there was the rise of the Second Reich. Internal conflict resulted in a unified German empire. Then you had what was Kaiser Wilhelm II. He fired Admiral Bismarck. He promoted nationalism. Uh, he, they were on the gold standard, and that was promoted there. Military expansion, uh, they increased colonization, and mining in South America. This is very important as the audience will realize that Germany had expanded into the Americas, both the United States and as easily as much into South America, predominantly Argentina, and that will come up later. As Bosley notes, this is the beginnings of what we see of the Nazis later in the 20th century, of course. Now, ninjas in South uh, America, they would go on. Okay, this, this is going to bring in another factor, which is uh, about, I, I mentioned the, uh, uh, the two outlaws, um, which uh, the public is well familiar with, uh, Butch Casting the Sundance Kid. And they literally are involved in this, yet it is in no other text whatsoever that you will ever find that Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, we always were taught, because history has been completely rewritten and falsified, that they were independent. Now, they were also uh, order of uh, another organization, uh, which was to uh, uh, help the South win the war. And it was, I will get the name in a moment, but it was... Uh, um, whereby they, uh, well, I'll just continue. Okay. They would, uh, Butch Cassidy and Sunday, they would go on heists and, uh, and robberies and the law would be there. But the thing is they, uh, were able 
to always escape up until a certain point. And the the point is that in the pictures, you'll be able to see uh, where they, uh, they were sent by the uh, German organization, NIMSA, to South America. And what the public would have no conception of is that they had wanted posters on both of them across the country for their uh, robbing the trains. And uh, what the public should know is that they didn't travel by freighter. They would have been arrested if they had gone to either the uh, West or East Coast to take a ship to uh, South America. They were flown down to Argentina by these crafts. And I'll get into that in a moment. But these crafts have existed. They were over the United States. Uh, they were predominantly in the Western uh, region from the Rocky Mountains uh, to California is where they practice them. But then they, uh, uh, from their air club, aerial club in uh, California in Sonora. So. Quick question, Chris. At that time, were they able to do like a transatlantic flight in these? Oh, absolutely. They did cross the Atlantic. That's how they were brought to the United States and South America. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment, but um, they were able to travel uh, by 1890 to travel a minimum of a thousand miles in less than eight hours. <laughs> that's, that is that's faster than our air transportation today. <laughs> oh, considering you got to wait in airports. Right, but think of what. Okay, what we use for we were using uh, Jeff, what is known as. Um, expendable or explosive technology, petroleum, okay? This is the alternate side. This is exactly juxtaposed. It is implosive energy and renewable. That's what the creator gave to us and what we should have been doing, but we've been literally debt-slaved to this explosive in, uh, re you know, uh, energy, which is, it's you with with the technology we have today. You have to number one. You have to have an in, infinite supply of oil. That's first of all, for both uh, diesel and gasoline. Then you have to combust it in a chamber, and this was all developed by Rockefeller, uh, because what Rockefeller did was he controlled uh, the not only the um, uh, let me see. He controlled the, the uh, grid, oil, yes, everything. Right. But before that, you actually had what was uh, uh, for energy. You had whale blubber, which was used. The fat was used for uh, lamps in the uh, late 1700s and the early 1800s. Okay. And then you switched over and you had, um, what's the uh, energy? It was... Uh, uh, I've drawn a blank. Sorry. Um, I'm, I have sh like 30 seconds short term memory. Anyway, the point is you had uh, a different type of energy, which was used from oil. And, uh, that was, uh, it'll come to me in a moment. And that, what happened was he had his engineers. He said that he works on a thousand percent profit principle. And what he wanted was the excess of what was used in the 1800s, okay? He wanted the excess turned into a profit-making uh, result. And what it was is that this excess became uh, from the petroleum that was used for uh, lighting uh, lamps and, and uh, uh, 
kerosene. That's the word I was trying to think of. Kerosene. Yes, lit kerosene. Okay, it just took me a moment. I've just got too much of my memory. Kerosene was what was used in the 1800s from the uh, roughly the 1820s all the way to the 1900s. And there was excess, there was byproduct from this kerosene. And he told his engineers and scientists about working on a thousand percent principle. He wanted to actually, you know, find a use for it. And that use became what we have today, which is gasoline and diesel. And it's strictly combustible, but we've been enslaved to it for literally a better part of 130 years. And it's not going to change until we make the transition over to renewable or implosive energy versus expendable. Okay. All right. So that's the background. But um, going forward, these aircrafts, um, the period of 1871 to, eight, to 1914 consisted of major German immigration into Argentina. Germany was on the gold standard and was getting heavily into mining. They were looking for more sources of gold as they needed more of it. The author alludes to that, uh, wouldn't you know it, there were airship sightings during this period. These are recorded uh, airship sightings. The first one was 1868, I'm talking about outside of Europe, in Copiapo, uh, which is C-O-P-I-A-P-O, Chile. This, another one was recorded 1880 in Venezuela, and a third one was in 1897 in Greenville, Texas. And the pilots uh, stopped to get uh, water and, and supplies, and there were 32 witnesses, and they offered to take them to South America uh, for letting them fill up as far as water tanks. And that was uh, uh, the that was in uh, Greenville, Texas, 1897. So this has been recorded, but this is not in any textbook or any type of papers. All of our history in early uh, newspapers, they're all been digitally scanned and if they're even available today. But this is how history gets blended in and how the uh, cabal and controlling elements can make the true history just disappear. So it isn't, it's basically in this South American thread is where he discovered something that really came out of nowhere and it startled me. Uh, it just made uh, too much sense. An image of E.H. Harriman. Harriman is the corporation in New York City, the financial corporation uh, that was the, uh, that Abraham Lincoln went to borrow in, eight, in uh, 1860 uh, when, uh, and also uh, be, multiple uh, times because both the in the wars were driven uh, by the Rothschild dynasty and they were lending money and uh, to both sides of the Civil War uh, and this was through the um, their houses they in London uh, it funded the north and in the uh, Paris it funded the south and this is the same scenario as during the Revolutionary War and uh, with that um, Bozzi was able to trace, and here's here's what he found out in this South American thread, that E.F. Harriman, president and owner of the Union Pacific Railroad, and Robert Leroy Parker, which is, that was his name, that was Butch Cassidy's real name, Robert Leroy Parker, uh, and how he, he was able to connect them. After being deep into his criminal life, 
Butch Cassidy decided he wanted amnesty. So he went to the governor Wells of Utah to discuss amnesty. Wells tells him that he really needs to go talk to the man that he's been stealing from the most, which is E.H. Harriman, because E.H. Harriman owned 64% of the Union Pacific Railroad. And that is the only railroad that Butch Cassidy's gang robbed. So um, here we have in 1899, the most famous train robber wanting amnesty. And here we have the guy that can grant it to him wanting to give it to him. But you talk to any Western historian and they'll stomp their foot and they'll tell you, no, that didn't happen. And they'll insist otherwise. When you look deeper at the facts, that doesn't make sense because a funny thing happens. After this period, we are told that no meeting between Harriman and Butch Cassidy ever took place because that's falsified history. Here's the arrangement. In 1901, Parker, Longabow, and at a place. So Parker is Butch Cassidy. Harry Longabow is... Uh, the Sundance Kid, and they go to Argentina with great ease, and they purchase 15,000 acres of choice land in a, a region called Cholila, which is C-H-O-L-I-L-A, which is 190 kilometers or 118 miles south of San Carlos de Baroque, which is a future Nazi reserve. So my point, Jeff, and to the audience is that this South American connection with the Germans isn't new. It goes way back into the 1800s, what they were setting up for the future, as far as where uh, uh, Hitler and Braun ended up in uh, Bariloche and uh, uh, southern uh, Argentina. It was already established. So Bosley continues that after Bush Cassidy expressed the desire for amnesty, the gang only robbed a Union Pacific train one more time. They never touched up and uh, they never um, robbed another uh, Union Pacific train again. And then the gang that could never be caught, that could do no wrong, never screw up, suddenly they could do no right. And this is what happened. They would go on heists and robberies and the law would already be there. They would find a posse that was coming around the corner or they would get into shootouts. And what's further interesting is that is the fact that Butch Cassidy, even though he would design the heist at that point, <coughs> excuse me, and plan it, he would never go on the robbery with him at that point they're on. He would send the gang to do it and disaster would happen. Bosley further elaborates that Bush Cassidy was never known to have killed anyone, and neither was the Sundance Kid. So these two famous robbers of for uh, train robbers, they never killed anyone in their entire career. There is no recorded history of them ever killing anyone, but they are known as just the opposite. Bosley further postulates about the fact that, based on the experience since Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid never shot anyone that those surely seem to be like the markings of an undercover operative. So let's go back to the ranch location. Now, in the picture that you'll be able to show them, Jeff, it shows a map of Argentina and where they had bought in Bariloche and uh, Chilola, Chilila, rather. And uh, the, 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 there is a star that denotes it on the map showing you've got superimposed two maps over the other and then a photograph of what the actual land looks like with the mountains in the background. Bosley uh, further inquires, how is it that this Old West train robber and E.H. Harriman of the Union Pacific Railroad, and why was this arrangement made for Butch and his friends to go down to this particular spot and establish a ranch? 
What's going on here? And at the same time, we have this German organization operating in South America. And is there a connection? So he hones in on the three pivotal characters within this topic. Bosley further elucidates, in my opinion, the story of these three, which is Butch, the Sundance Kid, and the woman that went with him, Etta, E-T-T-A, Place, P-L-A-C-E, has not been completely told. Now, you've learned about uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Sundance Kid, his name was Harry Longabow, and that's L-O-N-G-A-B-A-U-G-H, was a known expert marksman. Again, an expert marksman in a criminal gang that doesn't shoot anyone and he doesn't kill anyone, it, that's very peculiar. In the period, uh, and I already covered that, but basically in his, so they're looking at it that they think they're actually the law, that they're actually cops and they're undercover agents because they have this criminal record, but there is no evidence that they ever hurt anyone. So the lady in the corner, okay, of the picture at a place is even more amazing when he gets into his book, Friends from Sonora. She herself, the evidence suggests that she was neither Sundance's girlfriend or wife. She was a secular nun who was co-opted by the U.S. Secret Service. There's something you'll never know about at a place. I think she lies buried under a different name where she was murdered, probably by foreign agents in San Bernardino, California in 1915. But there's another story. Th these three established this ranch, uh, which became the future Nazi refugee, refuge territory. Nimja, and he goes on to say, the likely suspects. Uh, Bosley sinks his teeth into some of these characters that might have been, again, Nimja, which is N-J-M-Z-A. That includes, listen to these names. They're all German. Karl Reichenbach, okay? He was a chemist, a geologist, a metallurgist, industrialist, a philosopher, and member of the Prussian Academy of Sciences. Bosley calls him the classic philosopher-scientist. The second one, Karl uh, Kellner, K-E-L-N-E-R. He was founder of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is the O-T-O. That's your basically one of the names for the Illuminati in the early times. He was a chemist, inventor, and industrialist. The next one, Frederick Wannick, which is W-A-N-N-I-E-C-K. He was an iron and uh, engineering industrialist. He was a mystic, and he was an ardent nationalist. The next, Walter Rathenau, R-A-T-H-E-N-A-U. These are all German. Engineer, industrialist, chemist, philosopher, chairman of AEG, and ardent nationalist, another philosopher scientist. And then there was, this one's an odd name, but it is German as well. It's H-J-A-L-M-A-R. So that'd be like Homar Schaft, S-C-H-A-C-H-T. He was a politician, a banker, member of the Uranian Lodge, which is U-R-A-N-I-A, and supporter of Adolf Hitler. Bosley then proceeds to review the information which spans different historical periods presented regarding the Prussian nationalist period, the Second Reich industrialists and mystics, that of the Third Reich. So we get into the money aspect. The Prussian Nimza investors. In the 1840s, Prussia, which became Germany, advances railroads as a meaning to support military buildup and actually promote a nationalist cultural identity. Bosley further narrows down the German banks, which uh, probably bankrolled the entire support. This is an entire list. The German bankers, Berenberg, B-E-R-E-N-B-E-R-G, established 1590, the world's second oldest bank. 
Branches are in Portugal, Italy, and London, besides Germany. It was deeply involved in North American trade and finance at that time thereon. The next one is Metzler, M-E-T-Z-L-E-R. That was established in 1674, which is the second oldest bank in Germany. The third, uh, Trinkhaus and Burkhardt, which is T-R-I-N-K-H-A-U-S and B-U-R-K-H-A-R-D-T. They are also the ones that uh, established what is known as HSBC, which is Hong Kong Shanghai Bank of China. That was established in 1785. The next one, Sal Oppenheim, S-A-L-O-P-P-E-N-H-E-I-M. That was established in 1789. The family, the family married into the Rothschilds. In 1834, you had Abraham Oppenheimer, who enjoyed the inner circle of Wilhelm I of Germany. The next set, Hauk and Aufhauser, H-A-U-C-K and A-U-F-H-A-U-S-E-R. That was established in 1796. This is an absolute trend, Jeff. They have the basically the oldest established banking systems, and it was in Germany. Then you have Donner and Rochelle, which is D-O-N-N-E-R, R-E-U-S-C-H-E-L. That was established in 1798, and they were merchant shipping important to many of these banks. Then you have the one I know well, which is M.M. Warburg, W-A-R-B-U-R-G. That was established in 1798 uh, from the Vienna a Venetian family of Del Banco family. Then you have Berliner uh, Sparkkasse, which is B-E-R-L-I-N-E-R and S-P-A-R-K-A-S-S-A. That was established in 1818. Then the next is Stad Parkskas, uh München, which is S-D-A-D-T-S-P-A-R-K-A-S-S-E, München, which is Munich, M-U-N-C-H-E-N. That was 1824. Then you have Honer Bank, which is H-O-E, E-R-N-E-R uh, bank, and that was established 1849. So there's an absolute trend of banking that started in Germany going back to the late 1500s. Then you have the, those covered the banks that were involved. Then you have the post-aerial club era. And according to Delschau, that in the post-aerial club era, going into the 1860s, following the death of its leader, Peter Menes, then he further elaborates again that this German banking thread finds its connection to South America. Then you have the new era, which is post-U.S. Civil War. While an American airship group was forming, the Nimja Germans expanded their operations. Kuhn, Loeb, and Company, which I know well, uh, that was established in 1864 in New York. And that's K-U-H-N and L-O-E-B. The founder was Abraham Kuhn, uh, he was a German immigrant. He owned 64% of all rail lines, railroad lines in the United States. And he had very close ties to the Warburgs, which were German out of Hamburg. All uh, right. Bosley highlights what's important about Kuhn and Loeb is that, and he, in my opinion, marks the beginning of a Nimja allied banker system, which is actually an American established organization and yet is very German in its alliance to Nimja. Then you have uh, Kuhn and Loeb, which is the the rail baron banker. They were financed E.H. Uh, e. Harriman's purchase of the Union Pacific Railroad. So his question was, was Kuhn and Loeb behind the suspected arrangements between Harriman and Butch Cassidy? Absolutely. It was Kuhn and Loeb when E.H. Harriman spent an exorbitant amount of money to purchase the Union Pacific that supplied Harriman with his capital. 
Conan Loeb, the banking cartel, made it possible for Harriman to buy the Union Pacific Railroad outright. So now you have to ask yourself the amnesty that Bush Cassidy wanted. And we find out that this particular German banker was Harriman's guy. So Bosley then shows the next slide, uh, the connections of the events. Conan Loeb and company, they're connected to follow these companies, Jeff. Westinghouse, which Tesla was also connected to, Nikola. Uh, Western Union, Rockefeller and Chase Bank, which emerged today. Uh, German elites, uh, you had Khan, KHN, which is uh, banking. You have Warburgs, which is banking. Schiffs, which is banking, S-C-H-I-F-F-S. And then you have uh, federal government loans, uh, which involved uh, purchases in Austria, Mexico, and Venezuela. And though they are U.S. Go ahead, Jeff. Because you mentioned a name that is reminiscent of a senator currently in the U.S. senator, and yes, it is a bloodline, and yes, he is bad, and it's corrupt right to the core centuries old. That's correct. And you can see how many centuries it covers. Okay, so uh, then he goes... Following the money trail, uh, you have Oldenburgischlandsbank, which is O-L-D-E-N-B-U-R-G-I-S-C-H-E, and then Landesbank is L-A-N-D-E-S-B-N-K. That was established in 1868. Then you also have the Commerzbank, which is C-O-M-M-E-R-Z-B-A-N-K. That was established in 1870. Germany's second largest bank, and the uh, first chairman was the shipping magnet. Among the World War II uh, Grossbanken that was financed by the German military, and he sat on the boards of follow these companies. The these are three you should know: I.G. Farben, Krupps, and Siemen. I know them well. The 21st century laundering uh, happened. There was 253 billion dollars out of Iran, Sudan, and Myanmar. Okay, you then go on to the Deutsche Bank that was established in 1870. George Seaman was a founder and director. Among the, he was among the first overseas ventures into South America, Northern Pacific Railroad and the Baghdad Railroad of Iran. Okay, Iraq better. Uh, bonds uh, were given to uh, Krupps and Bayer, and then you know the company, B-A-Y-E-R. Okay, these are all German to stock. World War II, the bankers were to the Gestapo funding Auschwitz and IG farming facilities. And they were the very first company, the Deutsche Bank, to list on the New York Stock Exchange after the 9-11 incident. That's very interesting. Uh, the headquarters is in Frankfurt, and it's the Deutsche Bank Twin Towers. And he points out that uh, in the picture that the public will see, the Deutsche Bank uh, Twin Towers was completed in 1984. But what Bosley realized is when you look at the picture... Uh, from from an aerial view, you'll see that it is actually the equivalent of two legs, and it re represents what is known as the Masonic Order's Duo Guard, D-U-E hyphen G-U-A-R-D. And he shows a picture next to it that this is all based on the Masonic Order because the two feet, one is perpendicular, one is straight out, and the other one is off at an angle. The left foot is uh, pivoted to the to the outside. And that's exactly how it looks. And he, he did incredible research. Uh, Bozzi states. Yeah, I've got to say that's such a great point. And I just want to 
make a note of that. You know, the secret societies, they have all these different stances and things like that. So if someone is a Freemason, they could be even on vacation, for instance, and they'll just stand off to the side and they'll have their feet positioned a certain way and other Masons will know that they are essentially in that club and then they'll go and they'll start to share with each other. But they use this as an identifier. So when they built those towers, they per- they perfectly built that stance to say, hey, we're, we're in the club. Exactly. And that stands out. When they can see that picture, when you post it, they'll understand. Because it's a gigantic operation that they established. It's probably, oh, I would guess in the ballpark of 30 or 40 floors uh, high above the ground uh, four or five levels. Anyway, um, he states that that is known as the Royal Master's Stance. The very building is a Masonic Duagard uh, imagery. Deutsche Bank and the MJZ connection. They uh, were, were caught for corporate espionage in 2001 and 2007 uh, in the housing bubble and the CDO scandals. So the issues of the CDO earned commissions and the fees without residual liability. So what they did is they based it on volume over quality. DB was a major pusher of CDOs, and the Deutsche Bank sold bundles of very bad CDO loans. How much bad uh, that they actually pushed the international market? Uh, a minimum of uh, $32 billion. In bad CDOs and bonds and aggressively marketing between debt-based 2004 to 2008. Bosley notes that the corruption carried out by this big bank, uh, here you have the Deutsche Bank, which was the former Nazi bank, which I was aware, uh, doing this in this post-9-11 world. So what does this mean? Pulling no punches, Bosley harpoons an extremely notable fact, in my opinion. The NIMSA uh, Nazi International is much more involved in our world affairs than it is our, than it is in our best interest at all. American airship investors. Here we go. Bank of New York, established in 1784 by Alexander Hamilton. He was a traitor to this country, as I've mentioned. He financed the war uh, of 1812 and the Civil War. Uh, Engineering and industry, canals, steamboats, and subways. Brown and Brown Brothers and Harriman had merged in 1810. It is the oldest and largest private bank in the United States. The Citibank of New York was established in 1812. The bank president, Moses Taylor, was an Astor uh, protege, one of the original, what we know as the outward uh, 13 Illuminati families, uh, alphabetically. Anyway, Chemical Bank was established in 1824, which then uh, showed that they went into uh, the chemical manufacturing uh, business. Wells Fargo Bank was established in 1852. Uh, Transportation, express delivery, and the telegraph were their uh, focus. Goldman Sachs was established in 1869. Henry Goldman, subsequent uh, acquisition of, he bought Kuhn and Loeb, and he established the Zions Bank, I think you'd like that name, uh, Z-I-O-N-S, in 1873. And that was by uh, Brigham Young, uh, university in Utah, and in heart of the air, that was in the uh, center 
of what is known as the aerial ship uh, country between Utah to California. So now we have the American airship investors. John Pierpoint Morgan, known as J.P. Morgan. Then you also have J.P. Morgan Chase. Then you also have the bank, um, you, which formed the General Electric uh, and U.S. Steel Corporations. They paid three hundred dollars to a to a sub to serve for him in the Civil War, uh, and he he manufactured and sold defective rifles. Then you have the railroads and engineering uh, he was involved in, the Rothschild Gold and U.S. Treasury, and he rejected Tesla's free energy technology, creating a pay by usage nightmare that we experience today. Then you have John Jacob Astor the fourth. He was a family patriarch. He was German born. His father was pre-Civil War abolitionist. Uh, he was a military officer in the Spanish-American War. He authored a sci-fi novel about airship space travel. Now, don't you find that interesting? Because he already knew about it. Inventors. Uh, he uh, was an inventor. He funded uh, John Keeley and Nikola Tesla. Uh, he died on the Titanic. He was one of uh, uh, three key Illuminati people. The other, Another one was... Uh, uh, Macy family. Uh, then you also have um, F. Lewis Clark, uh, who is an industrialist from Maine, uh, possibly the actual uh, airship investor, one of them. And the, in the San Francisco Chronicle airship story was noted November 22nd, 1896. This is not new. They were recorded, Jeff, but you'll never find it because they've been removed from history as they've controlled the deep state has controlled everything to do with the media. So you would have to find it in and these uh, three individuals that were on the Titanic. That was the reason the Titanic was sunk. That is because correct. they opposed federal reserve. Why? Because they realized being very, very wealthy that they themselves were also going to lose power, even though they were in on it at first. Absolutely. Incredible. Correct. And the Titanic was sabotaged. What the public doesn't know is when you see the picture of the Titanic at port when they're docked to load, you're looking at the, the bow of the ship is, is uh, parked forward. And so what had happened was there was an ongoing fire for over three weeks on the, which is called the uh, starboard side. The port is the left, starboard is the right. And that fire was still raging and it had weakened the, the hull and it would continued throughout the uh, ship. And basically when it hit the iceberg, that the metal was already weakened and uh, it, it collapsed. It literally buckled. And the other factor is that uh, the person who is going to be the steward, chief steward uh, up on the uh, main deck, um, he was substituted and he had the key to where the binoculars were in the cabinet and then the key was never transferred. So they never saw the iceberg because they didn't have their binoculars or even uh, uh, collapsible telescopes. Those are other factors, but yes, it was absolutely sabotaged. And those three were very influential. They were very wealthy and they held a lot of weight within the Illuminati to as far as make a difference. And yes, Jeff, they, they would have lost money, but they were taken out because uh, it was also interesting that there was only, they didn't even have the equivalent of half. They had maybe 40% of the lifeboats because 
it was uh, considered uh, not attractive to have that many lifeboats and give the impression that uh, of any danger. So that is the other reason that uh, there were not even enough lifeboats on board. Anyway, uh, you are correct. So we go on and uh, then we get into the technology aspect. Bosley draws a comparison of technology and how the 19th century technology relates to the 20th century technology with the following illustrations. And they'll be able to see that the pictures of basically one is uh, the 1830 to the 1850s era, then the 1890s. They were the size of blimps. They were anywhere from 60 to 90 feet long. Um, and we'll get, and then basically he gives a comparison of the 1850 eras compared to what is known as a model T today. Uh, from the 19, early 1900s. Then the 1890s airship would be compared to like a 1958 Buick. And then what he's saying is like the modern one, modern UFOs, what uh, Bob Lazar calls the sport model of the standard uh, uh, discraft, that's compared to uh, a 911 uh, Porsche Carrera. Okay. The American group from 1862 to 1865 is a period involving Solomon Andrews or Andrews. And he demonstrated, Andrews demonstrated his Arion, what he called it, to reporters to the New York Herald uh, paper three times. He also met with Abraham Lincoln, who ordered Congress and Secretary Stanton to make determination on purchasing. Congress called for an immediate acquisition. However, Stanton allegedly rejected it, or did he? Uh, Colonel Samuel Tillman was a U.S. Army officer. He was a chemistry professor. He was also a past commandant of West Point Academy. He was an astronomer, an engineer, and science officer. He was an explorer of the American Southwest, and he was founding member of the Cosmos Club, which emerged and became the National Geographic Society today. Uh, the, he was an author of works uh, that he wrote. Say again. And that's interesting. Well, here's the connection, and it goes way back. We People don't research in depth in ancient history to see the correlation, how it affects today. And this is what I do. That's my goal and purpose, objective. Uh, he was an author on uh, books of chemistry and geology. Okay. So then you have that that one is Tillman. Then you also have Amos Dolbear, who had a Ph.D., uh, his resume included he was a doctor from Western University, where my cousins went, uh, professor of uh, UK, uh, which is University of Kentucky, in Bethany, and Tufts College, where my other cousin went, and uh, gyroscopes. Uh, he uh, was involved with resonance and electromagnetism. All three are correlated. Gyroscopes, resonance, electromagnetism. That has to do with harmonies, frequency, and sound. Okay. Uh, he was at the Paris Expo in 1871 and the Crystal Palace in 1882. He was preceded uh, by uh, Alexander Bell, uh, Marconi, and Hertz with technology for which history credits them. Uh, the American group was 1865 to 1897, and this is uh, includes Tillman and Dobar. Now, in the Dallas Morning News in Galveston, Texas uh, paper, uh, on April 19, 1897, they reported an airship that landed, one of these aerial ships that landed in at Stephenville, Texas. There were 22 witnesses, which included a judge, a senator, 
and the pilots identified themselves as, yes, Tillman and Dolbear, D-O-L-B-E-A-R. The expedition was backed uh, by the New York capitalist, okay? It was cigar-shaped, it was 60 foot in length, it had wheeled apparatus, and it was electric-powered, which is electric gravity. Then you have the Wilson family. Uh, Tosh Wilson, T-O-S-H, he was the uh, part of the Sonora Aero Club in 1850s. Then you have Willard H. Wilson, who is 1897 Airship News Reports. And then you have Hiram Wilson, uh, which was Willard's son in 1897. And then you also have uh, Professor Hiram Wilson in the 1950s, a relative. Then you also have Wilsons from the 1950s to the 1990s. So they're, he's showing the connection of this family to the aeroships. Uh, Bosley follows that with another picture of the aeroships, which you'll be able to show the public. Um, according to Del Shaw, this was a German immigrant that was sent over to basically spy and report for the German NIMSA club out of Germany. Okay. Uh, it, it used a secret powder and water and mixed together. This liquid dripped onto a special drum and this liquid turned into NB, and he didn't identify what NB, but it's a gas. And then the chemical reaction caused the drum to spin and powered an air compressor, and the process and apparatus gave lift and propulsion. Delshaw's description of the 1856 aerial motor, and which included all the way to the 1890s. It was a source of a gas supply in which air passed through a condenser, contained certain chemicals, the process of which produced a gas known only by the pilot. Uh, the source from the article in the Houston Post in April 22nd, 1897, about the uh, technology. And there are the other pictures that uh, uh, Arthur Bosley included. And it showed how the uh, technology worked. Then you have a generator cone. And this was formed with using wire and paste and filled with metal fillings on, raw, on a rawhide-shaped uh, most particularly, this cone spun on a central axis to which was fitted and the secret fuel was applied, thus powering and propelling the aerial. So what might this technology look like? Let's take a look below. You have what has been known as the generator cone that they developed to uh, originally start this aerial, uh, which is uh, liquid anti-gravity technology. And then it follows to what is known as the Die Glock in German, which uh, translates into the bell, which became the Nazi bell, which they tried to perfect in southern Poland to create a time machine. And then you also have what it was reported that landed in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, which the military immediately came in rather than other agencies of the government and confiscated the, the craft in 1865. But it looks like the Nazi bell because the Nazi bell did work but uh, that was the Nazi bell was taken to Argentina. That was flown there. I already have articles on that. It was traced into, uh, into Argentina, but that's another issue uh, to describe later. The description of the airship technology was discussed in witnesses. The ship's lengths range from anywhere starting as 10 feet, 20 feet, 75 feet, 130 feet, even more. So there are different multiple variations. There were geared wheels and flywheels, and it was 65,000 revolutions per minute. Uh, there were rapidly uh, ro revolving uh, uh, 
metallic uh, cylindrical balls, uh, the vibration or tapping of the uh, the thing, the metals uh, gave it lift. The electric power and batteries uh, was propelled with six to ten foot blades, depending on the size of the craft. There were green and red lights on the sides, with white uh, lights in the prow in the front, uh, which looks like a lot of our aircraft today. Bosley queries: What was the source of the possible energy or their power? When we get into electrogravitics, we it is known as the Bean field, which is B-I-E-F-I-E-L-D hyphen brown effect. That's German. Anti-gravity as a result of this electric field on mass. Dr. Lavoltet, which is L-A-V-I-O-L-E-T-T-E, wrote in the 2008 that electrogravitics were studied by Boeing in 2008, but the results have always remained classified. Rumors of possible E.g., which is electrogravitic, used in anti-gravitic on the B-2 stealth bomber. That is correct. Uh, gravitic electromagnetism. Uh, theory was published in 1893, Jeff, by Oliver Hevestad, which is H-E-A-V-I-S-I-D-E. This included counter-rotating wheels, which produce greater magnetic attraction when rotating in the same direction. The toroidal mass, which is T-R-O, T-R-O, T-O-R-O-I-D-A-L, mass, rotational aspects may be used to accelerate objects without experiencing G-forces. And G-forces, Jeff, is what all pilots experience in any type of liquid propulsion craft that we use in our jets today. Bosley anchors his presentation with a macro thread view of all the key components in his presentation. You start out with 1850 with the Prussian, which is German, and then it transfers, uh, that's the Sonora Club, where they built them in California. Then you have the Kuhn and Loeb and Company in South America. And then you have the Second Reich of the Nazis uh, in Germany. So that's the German aspect of it. Then you have the money section, which is the German bankers and industrialists, which I went through that list. Then you have uh, the money in the United States, Kuhn and Loeb and Company, and the German-American bankers and investors and then you have the Nazi and U.S. bankers working together. There was always a deep connection between Germany and uh, the United States. And it was never about uh, about uh, enemies. They worked together and they were funding Kuhn and Loeb and uh, uh, Fritz Thyssen were funding uh, Germany under Hitler. It was all about money, power, greed, and conquest. Uh, <clears throat> then you have... In Bosley's opinion, the breakaway civilization concept was activated in the mid-19th century. The modern world has been a product and playground of its development for at least 165 years, maybe even longer. We must rethink the history within the context. Bosley finalized by acknowledging that previous researchers that shift through this data made his presentation and research possible. He credits Dennis Crenshaw and Peter Navarro in The Secrets of Delashaw, who wrote on Delashaw was the immigrant, but also the spy for the NIMSA organization in the 1850s. Then you have uh, Michael uh, Busby, B-U-S-B-Y, solving the 1897 air, airship, which is also aerial ship mystery. Then you have Theo Plagian, which is P-A-I-J-M-A-N-S, and he wrote Free Energy Pioneer, uh, John Worrell Keeley. Keeley is uh, interesting. 
Jeff, he created the first one that I was able to find. He cured cancer in the early 1880s, 1882. And it was by a, a similar one that um, it was all has to do with frequencies and sounds and every cancer, which is man-made created. It's a product of man that he was able to detect just like um, Royal Raymond uh, Reif, who developed one in eight in 1930. Um, and it was proven it worked. You isolate every cancer has its own specific frequency level. Once you isolate it, you can absolutely eradicate it. And the last person was Sean Castile, C-A-S-T-E-L-L, um, did tests to go to Mars. The way that Bosley weaves all these various components of his presentation makes a groundbreaking lecture into the true origin of what Richard Dolan uh, has coined the breakaway civilization, and that is correct. We have definitely looked forward to this high-caliber work from Bosley, and in the future, his given track record in his books. Okay, so I've already identified uh, those books. The ones uh, uh, there. There's also links in the, in my article for a case of a breakaway civilization, a conversation with Richard Dolan, and then his secret space program slash breakaway civilization and fade to black jimmy church and richard dolan secret space program and breakaway civilizations that concludes the article on the airships of the 1830s to 1890s uh, let's check the time it's 206 i have enough time to do the second one are you ready jeff yeah, I'm ready. But Chris, before you finished on the airships, and I know you went through it, but I just, I didn't get a clear picture on how the propulsion worked on these, um, which is the opposite of explosion. Could you just back up and go over 